here with Ella Frears, um, who is a poet, writer and visual artist. She was awarded a place on the Gerard Arbonne Mentoring Scheme in 2016-17 and received a fully funded scholarship for the MA in Creative Writing at Royal Holloway. And while she was there, she, she, was, a part, uh, she was a poet in residence and wrote about the Cassini Space Mission. And her pamphlet, Passivity, Electricity, Acclivity, is published by Goldsmiths Press. Um, so your pamphlet was published in 2018, um, and it's a really wonderful title. I, <laughs> I had to look up acclivity, which I found out means an upward slope. Yeah, um, lots of people I think had to, I mean, I didn't know that word uh, yeah. well. Yeah. Um, I think because I went to a slightly shitty school, um, <laughs> I assume that when I don't know a word, it's, it's a word that most people know. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't think, it, it's been a funny reaction to the pamphlet because that conversation around that word has been... Um, at the forefront almost. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's a noun, it's an uphill, uphill slope. Yeah, yeah. So there was a recent review of your pamphlet in Poetry London um, by Lucy Mercer, and she related the idea of acclivity to the untitled poems in the collection, which she said bubble upwards into an extended lyric essay. Um, and I suppose I was wondering how you came up with the title and how you sort of see it relating to the content um, or sort of sh how it shapes the work inside, and also whether you sort of feel that you would describe your work as a lyric, or sort of conceive of it as a lyric essay as well. Mm. Um, yeah, Lucy's uh, review was, was beautiful. Um, I loved that reading of, of that word. Um, I think that the title, um, there were lots of reasons why I, I used the title. It sort of appeared quite early on, and it was at the, the head of the um, piece while I was writing it. And it seemed like um, one of those titles that when I was studying literature um, at Goldsmiths was like a sort of um, infinite jest. So it seemed like huge. <laughs> and, and because it's such a simple, simply written thing, the pamphlet, it, it felt quite funny to me to give it this like sort of grand title, um, almost as if it was overcutting rather than undercutting mm -hmm. the content. Mm -hmm. um, but for me throughout, I kind of, I kept trying to get rid of it because I thought that it, because um, it is an odd an odd collection of words, but it kept it kept feeling um, important, um, and I'm really really interested in this idea of passivity and sex mm -hmm. and um, sort of how trauma can manifest as as passivity, um, electricity because I think there's there's always um, those sort of moments of excitement within the, the grubbiness of life that it's never sort of straightforward. Um, and also there's, there is joy in there, there is humour. Yes. Um, and then acclivity, I, I wanted this sort of uphill struggle or this sort of, um, uh, yeah, a, a sort of incline um, to do with girlhood and to do with moving forwards. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, yeah, it sort yeah. of felt right. Yeah. And so the, the pamphlet sort of, it centres on this idea of a near abduction um, and also brings in lots of other unusual characters. So there's a man dresses the wizard Merlin. There's a woman called Lucy who sort of spreads these lies about the women, the, the people that she lives with. Um, and I was wondering if these all started as sort of distinct pieces or sort of separate things and, and how you wove them together and sort of what that process was like. Mm. Um, so it started, um, I went to Mongolia, um, uh, as you do. <laughs> um, I, uh, my partner's brother was living out there at the time and we went to visit him and um, the, I don't know what I was expecting, I didn't know much about Mongolia, but there's sort of um, the 1% of jobs, the top 1% of jobs is still men, but otherwise the sort of middle management um, 
is all women mostly and so it, the, the sort of gender balance or imbalance is the other way around mostly or it feels that way when you're there as a woman um, so there's no catcalling, no harassment, people don't really look at you as a, a young woman on the street um, and uh, in the restaurants and stuff you're give, I was given the bill not my partner and right. um, if we asked for directions I was the one that was told so you're, you're sort of and all the bars are full of businesswomen so it felt like a, a sort of alternate universe and, um, and I remember feeling like a human for the first time and not a woman um, and that was a really bizarre thing it sort of made me read from about the age of I don't know eight maybe maybe younger mm-hmm. um, I, I knew that I was a sort of female human and that's how I was observed so I started writing these fragments in my notebook of sort of moments where there was some sort of gender power play mm-hmm. um, whether that's the two women in the um, sort of stalkery um, uh, narrative or um, otherwise and um and so they started appearing, and, and I had this sort of messy, like, um, interwoven, like this is, a, a few things, and I was being mentored by Mona Arshi at the time, through mm-hmm. the Joe Adarvan scheme, and, um, and I showed her, and I said, look, I've got this mess, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, 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 write more. So then I started, so it wasn't separate narratives all written in one go, it, it, did, it was written as it appears. Oh, wow. Um, That's really interesting to yeah. think about. <laughs> um, and I, I suppose touching on the idea, you mentioned trauma, mm-hmm. um, and that was sort of one of the words that was in my head when I was reading it, um, sort of, you know, the, the trauma of being nearly abducted, as it appears in the pamphlet, um, and I think of just having your reality undercut in various mm-hmm. ways, or sort of, um, I think Lucy Mercy used the word uncanny at one point, yeah. sort of these like surrealistic, odd things that are happening. Um, and I wondered if you had any writers in mind when you were writing that um, and also whether you'd sort of think of your writing as confessional or that that's a word that you wouldn't use. Mm. Um, writer-wise uh, I'm sort of really affected by the, the female writers that I've read um, I guess the big ones being Jean Reese, Virginia Woolf, I mean that's like, I bet they're but also the sort of female poets I think there's um, and there's always assumed to be an element of confessionalism and I do definitely draw from from my own life and I think I'm really interested in the idea that um, no matter what I write if I'm writing in the first person and even if I'm not actually people assume that it's me yes yes um, and I think that that happens to everyone but it, it more often than not it happens to women <laughs> yes. I've, yeah I, was, I can't remember what it was I was reading recently about this but it was someone was telling a story about um, that they'd, they'd written something and someone came up to their husband in a bookshop and was like how did it feel to be to be written about in this book? And yeah, they, they exactly. worked. <laughs> it was just they they read you know straight up. They read the eye as being you know the eye of the woman writing. Yeah, I have a, a poem where I um, where the eye traps somebody on a roof, um, <gasps> and everyone always asks my boyfriend in the audience if he's okay, like if he got down, and he's like, I don't know, that didn't happen. Wow. I mean, I did. Yeah, I did lock him on a mezzanine, but separate <laughs> separate issue. Um, but yeah, so I but but what I do in the pamphlet is I um, name myself. I think once I don't know if it happens twice, but I, I use my own name mm-hmm. because I think I'm I'm interested in and lots of writers do that um, like Welbeck and mm-hmm. and I think Proust as well. Um, they give their first name to the character and nobody ever is like uh, oh it's a complete confessional narrative and there are yeah. things in there that are surreal that can't yeah. possibly be true. Yeah. Um, so I think I wanted to play with those. 
um, woven narratives of, of the actual and the fictional. That's interesting. That makes me think of Rachel Cusk a little mm, bit. Yeah. The idea of playing with like outline and whether you're in the story or not in the story. Mm. And also makes me think of Hera Lindsay Bird's collection, which she uh, named which after I herself. Love. Yeah. yeah. And I was also wondering, are there poets that you go for or go to specifically for inspiration and sort of to learn things from and poets you read purely for enjoyment, sort of in that sort of separator sense? Oh, or yeah. or is there a crossover in sort of who you read and why? And do you ever sort of read, I guess, purposefully or purposelessly? Yeah, um, that's a really, really interesting question. I don't think I've ever thought about reading um, like that. I mean, I'm, because I the way that I make money is I do I hop from one residency to another. So I always have a particular thing that I'm having to think about, whether mm-hmm. it's a spacecraft or... Um, most recently, some moss. Um, some brilliant, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I think that I quite often read to try and inform those projects, whether it's directly about that subject or not. Um, but there are there are poets I revisit, um, like uh, like Plath, which mm-hmm. seems like a sort of stereotype, but I just um, I do. And then the John Berryman's Dream Songs, I'll read for enjoyment. I go I dip into those. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of, uh, I mean, I'm, I teach as well, so I'm quite often reading things for classes. For um, so yeah, I but I, I enjoy it all. It's yeah. all good. Yeah. Alice Oswald must be good for moss. Oh God, yeah. Well. Do you know what I do? <laughs> I love her work. It's been a little while. Yeah, I should, yeah, I should visit. Yeah. Visit. So actually, see, so you mentioned residencies, um, and uh, you've done them for the National Trust for Tate Britain. Um, and as, as we sort of mentioned, the, um, the Royal Holloway Physics Department, where you mm. wrote about the Cassini space mission. And I was wondering if you could just tell me a bit more about, about these. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, I'm really interested in site-specific work anyway and, and um, in being forced to write about things that I wouldn't normally write about and that sort of stopping my work becoming formulaic or, or getting into a pattern. Um, but uh, because I'm also a visual artist, I, so I do a lot of work with galleries, so the Tate Britain one was with Tracy Emmons' My Bed. Oh. Um, and the I, I also made like a huge modernist carpet in Tate's and Ives, 120 square metres, with um, the artist Ben Sanderson, we made it together. Um, and that had pillars, six pillars with text on, and then this enormous hand-cut carpet. Um, but I, I think... As a way of, of making a living, it's it's sort of quite stressful at times, but um, is is amazing. Um, but I mean, I so I, in the last month, I so I finished this project about moss, this rare species of moss, for um, a, a conservation organisation, and now I'm writing about vintage porn for an art magazine. Wow! <laughs> so, it's, so it's quite a jump. Yeah, and what's weird is that I, I I never quite let go of one subject, so I'll still be. I mean, it's been maybe two years now, or a year and a half since I was writing about the spacecraft, but I still find that coming into things, so I'll be writing about dicks and then suddenly the spacecraft will... So it's like, <laughs> they all sort of are layering up and I think there'll be some weird mashup poem at the end yeah. of it all. That sounds great. <laughs> um, and you've, you've also, you've edited the forthcoming issue of Magma, yeah. um, along with Richard Scott, and this will be coming out in April. Mm. Um, how do you find balancing editorial and creative work? And does the editorial work somehow change or influence your creative work? Um, I love I love editing. Um, and uh, because Magma is a rolling editorship 
um, you. So I did my the last time I edited a full version like this was uh, three years ago, I think. Um, and so it, you have a bit of a break, but it's a lot of work. Um, we had four thousand poems submitted, so we had two months to read four thousand poems, which um, does it does slightly get in the way of, of, of creative writing, like my own my own writing, yeah. um, because you've got all of these voices in your head. But I think that that after there's been some space, it, it helps. I, I, it's lovely seeing what's out there, yeah. um, and I'm really really proud of what we've come up with. Actually, That's brilliant. really excited for everyone to yes. see it. <laughs> um, and your poem and sand and sand and sand. <laughs> Um, was published in the LRB, and it's about a friend who, um, as the poem says, is into sand. Mm. Um, and there are some really great lines in the poem, which is kind of like a, just a pile-up of lines. Oh, um, so I think you have the moment midway through um, where the friend says, or, or the poem says, get off my sand, he'll say <laughs> when he reads this, which made me laugh. And, and you sort of mentioned humour earlier, and I was just wondering what role you think humour plays in, in poetry, or, or your poetry specifically, or should play in poetry more generally? Mm, I think it's so important, I, and it's really important to me, um, as a sort of form of resistance, I think um, when you're writing about trauma, um, especially, and about sexuality, and about um, gender, that, that humour is an amazing tool f- for that, and also it's, it, it makes the, the contrast between the darks and the lights better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think poets like Kira Lindsay Bird and Jennifer L. Knox um, and, and other amazingly funny women writers are um, sort of at the forefront of this uh, feminist mm-hmm. um, female line. I, I think it's amazing. So, yeah, I, I, I work really hard on, that, <laughs> on the humour. I'm glad you find it funny. Yeah, yeah, no, it was. And there's, I mean, I was thinking of Anne Carson as well, who's, mm. who's funny in a very witty sometimes quite sort of tinder dry way. Um, and just a very inventive way. Yeah, she's well. hilarious. Yeah, yeah, she's good. <laughs> um, and and you publish poems in, in various magazines, so the LRB, also Poetry London, and the, the Rialto, uh, other other magazines as well. Um, how important is magazine culture to you? And also, two questions in one: Do you have a routine when you're sort of sending out work, or or are you more sort of sporadic about it? Um, it's it's. Um, I wish I was more consistent. Um, I mean, because I edit a magazine, I, I sort of I feel like I buy into that that culture, um, and I think it's an amazing thing um, that people do. I mean, it, it's all voluntary for Magma, at least. Nobody gets paid, um, so it's you're sort of doing it for the love. You're reading through all these things, and I think you're putting together something that is a snapshot of that moment in contemporary poetry, usually, which is lovely. And so I like reading the other magazines to see what what else is happening in the landscape that mm-hmm. we're involved in at the moment. Um, I'm aware that the the submission times for applying are, are sort of glacial, and I am on the receiving end of that as well. Um, and there have definitely had years where I'm sort of slightly ground down by rejections, like everybody is. Yeah. Um, but I still think it's it's worth it, and it's lovely seeing your work in print. Um, what was the second part of the question? Um, whether you have a routine for sending poems. Ah, yeah. So I read that blog by Jo Bell um, years ago, the Jo Bell Method. I don't know if you saw it. Um, where she talks about, she has like a system with different folders and she is, is constantly sending things out. And at that point I hadn't really had that much published and I, that was a real influence on me and I give that to my students as well. So I think it's, it's amazing once you let go of the sort of um, 
emotional weight that a, a submission can carry for you then suddenly it's just part of your another part of your job which is yeah, yeah so I mean I, I, I wish I was better at sending stuff out at the moment <laughs> but <laughs> I guess I also wanted to ask what you want to write next you said you're working on something at, at the moment um do you have plans sort of after that as well or is yeah it um it, yeah there's always a few things lined up um, so project-wise, um, so I've got some poems in Tate's and Ives, they were installed today, um, so they'll be up. Um, this vintage form stuff is coming out in the magazine, I'm in the deadlines tomorrow, so um, <laughs> they'll, they'll be coming out soon. Um, I'm doing a performance in the uh, London Design Museum on the 22nd of March with artist Linda Sterling, um, which is amazing because I've never done a performance art piece like that before. And we'll be very, I've been asked to pick out my costumes from um, like the Central St. Martin's um, MA show. So they're like catwalk pieces, which, I mean, I'm um, not catwalk size, but I, I presume I'll be able to find something. Um, but uh, that's really exciting. And then I'm working on my first collection sort of slowly, and um, hopefully that'll be coming to some sort of close soon. <laughs> I've been, I keep reopening the manuscript and going to it, but I think it's... There. Great. Um, maybe this would be a good time to hear some of the poems. Yeah. Which one would you like first? Um, yeah. So I, I, I thought maybe if you could read two sections yeah. from um, the pamphlet and then maybe finish with um, and sand and sand and sand, <laughs> whose title is so fun to say as well. <laughs> I always feel like such an idiot on stage when I do that. Okay. I heard a story about a man who made shoes for spies. These shoes were made to be given to the enemy. At first they would feel perfectly comfortable, but over time they would change the enemy's gait, making them walk with a slight limp which would register in others as a lack of confidence. Their self-assurance would begin to wane and an ache would develop somewhere deep inside their bones. The enemy would sicken, would have to take leave from work. The shoes would in inexplicably change the shape of their feet so that no other shoes felt right. The enemy would form an attachment which, over time, would become a compulsion. They would never go anywhere without the shoes, might even begin wearing them in bed. The enemy's partner would grow weary, would leave them for someone easier, less fraught. The enemy would drink for the pain, lose hope and wonder why the circulation in their toes was so bad that in winter they were bluish black. This condition would spread to their feet, then their legs, and because they were now the nervous type who would not want to bother the doctor, it'd all be left too late and they'd lose something. A toe if they were lucky, a foot if not. A boyfriend who thinks I've seen him kissing another girl outside the rugby club tells me he couldn't bear how heartbroken I looked, that he regretted it the moment he saw how much it mattered to me. But I hadn't seen. I'd been tasting the cold air, feeling my heart beat into the dark car park, the thrill of my presence under the sky alone, or so I thought. Maybe there is always someone watching. Maybe there is always someone to tell you that your heart has broken, no matter how whole you feel, beside the bins and under the stars. He calls my phone to check that I haven't given him a false number, leaves me a voicemail with my nipple in his mouth. The next morning alone I listen to his voice, like a child talking with his mouth full. And then there's me, like a dull, distant mother. Gently, gently, gently. 
And sand, and sand, and sand, and sand. I have this friend who's into sand. Not like the beach, like sand you might use in construction. The economics of sand. Buying and selling sand. Not that he buys or sells, but he enjoys, for example, that there is a black market for sand. This friend is a writer. He writes these novels in which characters are obsessed with sand, buried in sand crack a tooth on some sand stuck to a sandwich. When he describes the act of eating sand, he describes it so vividly, I know he's done it. I don't even need to ask. He likes to eat things. He's a good cook. He also ate a lover's hair once. It's not like he's got a sand fetish. Although scrutinise anything for long enough, it might as well be your kink. There's porn for everyone now. I'm sure there's sand porn. I'm going to Google sand porn. An hour has passed and it's just sand-coloured bodies on a beach and I don't feel any different. And yet I am changed. Walking through this city with this friend who used to love cities but now loves sand. I wonder if there's anything left to be interested in. Get off my sand, he'll say when he reads this. But this isn't about the sand. It's about those times I've fallen asleep at parties and woken to him. High as the great dune of Pilat. His eyes like gaping coal pits, which doesn't fit the theme, but boy, are those eyes black. Kneeling over me saying, don't sleep, don't sleep yet. And although the sofa is deep and my limbs are dead weights in the shallow end of the pool, I do get up and I'm glad to watch us from my vantage point, somewhere between the present and my mind's eye. Two misshapen grains, buffeted, angular, Dancing as the sun cuts across the window in a building, 20 miles wide, 20 miles high, stretching further than our tiny human eyes can see. Thank you so much. Thank you.